welcome to Fish Across the Pond, a Miami Marlins UK podcast. This is episode 43, and joining me today is former Miami Marlins president and now professional podcaster, David Sampson. David, how are you? Good, how are you? It's good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well also. Um, finding new and innovative ways to keep busy in, in tricky times. But yeah, I'm, I'm staying active, staying, staying busy and, you know, hoping to uh, keep the podcast stuff rolling. I know you've been very active with the daily pods, so my, I tip my hat to you. Um, there's no pressure with, uh, with me today. I'm probably, uh, I wouldn't describe myself as a professional podcaster either. So um, I'm feeling slightly anxious here, but <laughs> we'll see. It should be fun. Well, you're doing great. And I would say that you are professional because you have a great microphone and you've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. And of course, you live in one of the greatest countries in the world. So you got a lot going for you. There you go. Awesome. Um, listen, thanks so much for finding the time to talk. I, I think this could be a really fun, fun episode and a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, before, we, before we dive into the Marlins, um, I, I'd like to maybe start with kind of what we're seeing right now um, in, in the world and how things are potentially progressing regarding, you know, baseball in 2020 in, in the U.S. I know obviously the KBOs started back up, but how, how are you assessing the landscape right now? I mean, are we going to see baseball in, in the U.S. in 2020? Well, I certainly hope so. And I wrote an article that was on CBSSports.com. It's on there now. I think it posted on Monday. And the biggest problem I have is that there's not enough testing here in the United States. And in order to have any of the sports come back, you have to have rapid testing and constant testing of not just players, but also staff and anybody involved in putting on a baseball game. And there's more people than you think, including flight attendants and pilots, people who handle the luggage, people who do the laundry, people who are serving food and room service at team hotels when teams are on the road bus drivers. There's just many different people involved. You have to be able to test them all, not just some of them, because the overriding fact, there's two in my opinion. One, you have to make sure that if you start a season here in 2020, that one positive test, like a Rudy Gobert, which started all this in, in March with the Utah Jazz when he tested positive, that shut everything down. You can't restart, have a positive test, and then shut everything down again. There has to be a protocol in place where that player can be quarantined or that staff member can be quarantined, and then the game goes on. And the second thing is we have to see where we are from an overall health protocol standpoint. And right now, the reason why rumors are a July start, and I don't think that's realistic, I think August is probably a better chance for baseball, but that just assumes testing. So here in the U.S., I think it'll be all the sports are able to start or none of the sports. Yep. Any fans in the stadiums at all? Probably not. So in, in my plan, there will not be fans in the stadium. I just don't see a situation where it's going to make sense from a health standpoint uh, and a logistical standpoint, I think maybe in 2021. But even that's not going to be a guarantee. I think throughout the 2020 calendar year, you're not going to see large events, whether it be concerts, whether it be sporting events. I just don't think you're going to see that as companies try to prepare for it's, it's a tremendous logistical challenge 
to figure out what you're going to do. It's not as easy as just taking someone's temperature and saying, all right, come on in. There have to be brand new sanitization protocols that actually have to be followed. I mean, listen, I can't even tell you the way we used to clean our stadium because I'm embarrassed about it. Now, did we follow the law? Yeah. But is it something that I'd be satisfied with at this moment? Not even close. No. It's definitely a different world right now uh, and, and the health concerns uh, or the risk associated with it is, is much, much greater. So, yeah, I think, I think it's unfair perhaps to look back to uh, the protocols that you, guys, <laughs> that you guys employed with the stadium back then, for sure. Um, just, just something else, just before we um, get into the, the Marlins, something else has popped up is more of the financial side. And I was interested to get your take on this too. And asking the players to, um, I guess, well, or the view maybe the owners perhaps are going to ask players to, to, to deviate away from prorated contracts if, if indeed things get fired up. Um, I, I, the players naturally are going to push back on that one, I think. And so maybe we end up with just a, a standoff with ownership and players and, and it isn't the health reasons that stop us. So let's start and explain to your audience exactly what is happening. Right now, you're hearing a lot of people say that the players have agreed already to a pay cut. And no, they have not. So here's my example. A player is paid $10 million to play 162 games. If there's only 81 games, it makes perfect sense that that player would only get paid $5 million. That's not a pay cut. That's just a prorated pay for the amount of work that you're actually doing. So if you are paid to do 200 episodes of your pod and you're paid a dollar an episode for $200, if you only do 100, you're only going to get $100, but that doesn't mean you got a pay cut. You didn't do all the work to get to 200. What the owners are now saying is, listen, while we appreciate and understand that there will be prorated pay if we play fewer than 162 games, we need more than that. The same way employers have gone to employees in every industry and said, we can't pay you your salary, you're gonna have a 20% pay cut or a 30% pay cut or a 10% pay cut. We expect you to do the same work, but because our revenue is so down, because we don't know the economic viability or future of our industry, pick an industry. It's not just sports. You're going to have to take a pay cut. And the players are saying, no, we're not going to do it. But employees all over the world are doing it. So I think that there's a mix up in explaining to people exactly what's happening. Yeah. I mean, this could get ugly very quickly for baseball all of a sudden if, if that's the way things go. For me, I think this looks to be an excellent opportunity for baseball right now to come out of it great. I mean, there's, there'll be baseball on the telly every day, let's say. That's what people need. That's what we're excited to see. And it, I hope that the finances and the players and the owners and everyone in between finds just a, a middle ground to make it happen because it's a great opportunity, I think, to showcase baseball again. I think that there will be an agreement between the players and the owners, but I think that the economics are not going to stop baseball from restarting. I think that if it doesn't happen, it's going to be a health-related issue because can you imagine for a minute that the NFL, NBA, and NHL all are able to start, but then baseball doesn't? I think that would shine such an unfavorable light upon the sport that they wouldn't want that. 
And in other years, when you have a collective bargaining agreement that you are negotiating, and if there's a strike or a lockout, people are upset and angry, but they understand that there's a negotiation going on and eventually an agreement will happen no matter how upset they feel about millionaires and billionaires fighting. But in the time of global pandemia, I think that the sports really are aligned in that, hey, all for one, one for all. If we're all going to start, we're all going to start. If none of us can start, then we won't. And I'm talking, as I said, hockey, basketball, baseball, football, forgetting golf and UFC and, and WWE and sports like that. So I, I don't think that baseball will ever stand up and tell its fans, listen, everything's fine from a pandemic standpoint, but man, we just can't come to an agreement. I don't think that's going to happen. No, that would not be a good look, but good. Well, I think it sounds, things are moving in the right direction. Uh, I'm with you that I think July sounds early um, and there's going to need to be some, you know, the availability of tests is going to be crucial, right? Because, and also the protocol of what happens if someone tests positive, because, you know, game one, Mike Trout has a test, he's positive. What, what happens next? You know, you can't shut it down. It wouldn't be great for, for the angels, but um or for Mike Trout. But, you know, those are the questions that need answering before you start, right? Because, you know, it, it is going to happen in all likelihood. Someone you know, will test positive along the way and the show needs to go on if indeed they, they go to the length of starting up. So um, who, final one, if they get going, let's say they play 80 games, who's your, who's your uh, 2020 World Series winner? <laughs> Well, I think actually the team which will benefit the most from a shorter season without fans is likely the Houston Astros because in a longer season with fans, they would actually have to have an adjustment period. While players say they don't hear the fans, they don't hear the booing, they don't hear the heckling, that's not true. They hear everything. We all hear it. Owners, presidents, players, we hear it. Playing in front of no fans leads to no distractions. And losing a year would really hurt the Astros because losing a year of Verlander when he only has two left and he's getting older, I think the Astros have a really good chance and they're highly motivated to prove that they don't need garbage cans in order to win. But if, if the season starts and if there is sort of a change in the schedule, which I believe there will be, it's going to be very interesting where the Astros, let's say, are playing the Dodgers and they're playing – uh, the Angels more than they would, the Dodgers more than they would. It's hard to know exactly who's going to benefit and who's not until we see an exact schedule. Yeah, I think that's a, a great shout that the Astros with empty stadiums, I think it will help them or it will benefit them anyway um, <laughs> versus the, uh, the serious amount of abuse that they would have sustained, no doubt about that. So, um, Awesome. Well, Let's, let's move on to the Marlins. It is a, a Marlins podcast after all, so it's probably right to do so. Um, looking back at when it started and when you joined the franchise, it was 2002. Um, so Jeffrey Loria sold the Expos. Um, not entirely sure the, the full transaction details, but it looked like it was to the league almost or to the commissioner's office. And, um, and then subsequently then bought the, the Miami Marlins. You or the Florida Marlins then, sorry. You came from Montreal to Miami as part of that and uh, was in the role of, of president for, for the Florida Marlins. Um, first question, though, how, how is it working for your stepdad? 
Well, we did a good job. He was actually my stepfather until 2004. Uh, and for the last 13 years I worked for him, he was no longer my stepfather. He and my mother had gotten divorced. But we were pretty good about separating family from business. It was very much a business relationship. When you're running a, a huge company that ends up being a billion-dollar company, there's really no time for family squabbles. And if I weren't able to do my job well, I would have been fired like anybody else because at the end of the day, it's business and it's nothing personal. That's my whole show is that exact concept. So we were fine. What we would do is we had a rule that when we would start talking, uh, we would be very clear. Okay, we're about to talk business now. So we would talk business and deal with the issues of the day. And then at some times we'd say, all right, family. And then we'd switch gears and we'd go back to talking about something that was family related. We never mixed the two ever because it would have been like oil and water because you cannot let emotion and family is full of emotion, as you know, you cannot let emotion get in the way when you're running a business. And we did not let emotion get in the way when we worked together to run the Marlins. Yeah, very, very sensible. It's almost like you need like a card up or, you know, some sort of color code and to say, right. This is what's happening right now. Um, exactly. Where, where were you guys doing Thanksgiving? Where was, the, uh, where was that uh, generally taking place? So we did some transactions on Thanksgiving, but we were not together normally. Right. It's funny the way it works because I'd say for 18 years that I worked for him, we probably spoke on the phone every single day. So we spent very few family holidays together. Can you imagine working for a boss? You work every day and on off days, you really want to be with your boss. So I really didn't want to be right at those family affairs because I just needed some time away just to catch my breath because baseball is very much a seven day a week, 52 week a year job. I never had an off season. Your, your, your life is ruled by the calendar of free agency, of spring training, of the all-star break, of the regular season, then starting again. So it is pretty fascinating to me uh, how baseball is the only game without a clock, yet I feel as though the rhythms of baseball are much greater than any other sport, and those rhythms are based solely on the clock. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting take. You're right. Um, and because it's such a long season, I mean, 162 games over months, and then, you know, it's, it soon comes back around again. By the time World Series ends in, in October, um, you know, you're, you're back around so quickly to, you know, I guess, other activities associated to it. But um, this, this may seem um, an obvious question, but one I should ask, um, the role president of Miami Marlins or Florida Marlins. What, what were the kind of day-to-day -day responsibilities? You know, what, what were you doing on a day-to-day -day basis within that role? Well, my role was to oversee the entire business operation and baseball operation, everything regarding the team. So sales, marketing, finance, baseball operations, uh, human resources, public relations. So my day was split. Basically, when you're the president of a company, you basically don't do anything 
but referee fights between departments who are working with you. So I'd have the sales department come with, to me with the marketing department. They'd have a plan and they couldn't come to an agreement. I'd have the baseball department with the sales department where they'd want players to make appearances. I'd have the community relations department come to me with the sales department saying that they're not supporting us properly. And my job was to take in all the information and then make a decision. So I'd say the biggest thing I did throughout 18 years is you just make a lot of decisions and you don't get everyone right. When you're the leader of a company, you are not counted on to get every decision right. You're just counted on to make the decisions and take responsibility for the decisions. And when things go right, you give the credit to other people. And when things go wrong, you take the blame yourself. So each day was a day where you focus on general long-term. I always had long-term goals, mid-term goals, and short-term goals. And I would try to address some of each every single day. Short-term goals are things that had to be done that day. They were crises that would come up from a PR standpoint or a baseball injury standpoint or some acute problem where you couldn't sort of noodle over it and sleep on it. You had to deal with it that moment. And then I would keep moving because as the days go on, the long-term issues become midterm and then they become acute if you procrastinate so much. So I would sort of watch my pipeline of issues to make sure I wouldn't have a clogged pipe anywhere. Yeah, makes sense. Who was, who was the go-to person, the outside influence where you think, I need a second opinion here. Who would you go to? So it depends what the subject was. I'm lucky enough that I had a lot of mentors and I would listen to a lot of people. The way I operated as a president is I wanted to get as much information as I could. And I think that really came from my law background, where in law you do enough research and you only know you're done when you start seeing the same cases over and over again, when you're researching from different angles. And then you sort of feel like you've finished your legal research to understand a point. That's what I would do. So if I had a public relations issue, I would speak to people who were in the public eye. I would speak to people who ran PR agencies. I would speak to our PR department. And I wouldn't give up confidential information. I would talk a lot in hypotheticals. Listen, I've got to deal with a situation where an employee is in trouble with the law. Here's sort of the four or five things I need to figure out. What are your thoughts on X or Y? But I didn't suffer from recency bias, which is a common affliction of many executives where the last thing they're told is the thing they do. I was very careful not to have that happen because then everyone who works with you tries to get the last word in. If they know that you're someone who takes the last word and says, ah, that's what I'm going to do. So I was always careful about that. And I would do it in a very logical sort of flow chart way is how I would make my decisions. So I can't say I had any one go-to person. It really depended on subject matter. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. Um, you mentioned earlier as well, you know, you had short, mid, long-term goals. Um, from, you know, when you joined the Marlins in 2002, at that stage, what was the, what was the long-term strategy for the, for the franchise? How did, you, how did you envision things playing out? Well, back in 2002, you had to remember that when we got the team from John Henry, John Henry, who then went on to buy the Red Sox in that transaction, he wanted out of Florida. He could not get a ballpark built. He bought the team from Wayne Huizenga, who was the original owner of the Florida Marlins, who could not get a ballpark built. So he wanted to sell the team. So no one, and these were billionaire geniuses in business, they were unable to get a deal done. 
We came in in 02 saying, all right, our long-term plan, we've got to get a ballpark built because if we do, that will increase the value of the team. And that's our overall long-term financial goal. From a on-field standpoint, listen, if you can be in the game for 18 years and get a ring on your finger, then you've been successful. Many, many people go through their entire careers, long careers, and they never get a World Series. So that was always a long, mid, and short-term goal. We never sort of agreed to rebuild, even when we should have. We would take the team down, but we wouldn't do full rebuilds. So we would, we would you know, have a window. Let's say from 02 to 05, we had a window. We won a World Series in that window and tried to win another. Then we brought it down in 06 and built that up through 09. And then we started again in 2012, built that up. It only lasted a year. Started again in 2013 and ended up with an outfield of Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna, but still couldn't get in, even into the playoffs or even a winning record for, for crying out loud. So, you know, you, you try to think about on-the-field goals, always keeping in mind what your off-the-field goals are as well. Yeah. Um, Makes makes sense, and I, I just wanted to ask about the, the 2003 season, and, and or maybe just if you can describe to me how you felt in that you know that whole season. It was it was a crazy season in many ways, um, and was I should note it was before before my time following the game, so I didn't follow it in real time, but obviously gone back and uh, familiarized myself with what went on. But it seemed an unbelievable year. So I'm interested to hear from from your perspective, you know how that, how that felt and how that was. Um, you know, I guess culminating in, in Yankee Stadium, right? You know, in 2003, we signed Pudge Rodriguez to a one-year deal before spring training for $10 million. It was quite a reach. He represented quite a large percentage of our payroll. We thought we had an interesting pitching staff. We liked our position players, but, you know, no way to know. About a month and a half through the season, we're not winning games, so we do what I did, I don't know, 10 or 12 times during my career. We fired the manager, brought in Jack McKeon, who at the time was 70 or 71 or 72. You know, people thought we were absolutely crazy. And generally, we probably were crazy. It just happened to work out. And what happened in 03 is little things throughout the season. We would win a game. Then we'd win a two out of three. Then we won back-to-back series, so four out of six. Then we feel like, wow, you know, we're almost in the wild card race here. Let's see if we can add. So we trade for Ugetherbina, who was a closer, to add him to the bullpen, thinking that with our starting rotation that we could have used more bullpen. We had Miguel Cabrera, who was a kid who was coming up and batting cleanup and being so far superior to what we dreamt he would be. We had this throw-in from a year before, a guy named Dontrell Willis, there's not one member of the Marlins who, if they're telling you the truth, will tell you that they thought Dontrell Willis was anything other than a throw-in in a trade that we made, literally, with the Cubs. He was just a guy, right? We took him because he had a pulse. That's it. So when he, all of a sudden he comes and we realize this guy is actually – He's got arms and legs all over the place. This is not a long-term delivery that can last. It's too complicated to repeat. And in pitching, you want a nice, easy delivery that can be repeatable. That's how you can get long-term success. But, hey, he was doing great that year. So all of a sudden, we turn around, and we have a chance to be a wild-card team. So we clinched the wild-card, and that felt as though we had won the World Series. We celebrated as though we had – that's the first time we had been in the playoffs. It was our fourth season in the game. 
And I just said, this may never happen again, so let's celebrate. And we were going to San Francisco to play Barry Bonds and the Giants, who were the best team in baseball that year. They won over 100 games. And we figured, listen, we'll play them in a three out of five. We're going to San Francisco for two games. Let's try to win a game if we possibly can. And then come back to Florida and see what happens. But no expectations. So we lose game one, and I'm thinking, all right, that's all right. We all of a sudden win game two, which was very surprising. And we go back, and we then win the next two in Florida. And I remember when we clinched the wild card and beat then the Giants to go to the LCS, the League Championship Series, I remember thinking, wow, we could win the pennant. I mean, we're not going to because we're playing the Cubs, and they've got Pryor, and they've got Wood, and they've got Zambrano, and they're just, they're so good. And they're the Cubs, and the whole world is rooting for them because they had not won a World Series. They had the Billy Goat curse, the whole package. And we go into Chicago, we lose a game, and we're thinking, ah, you know, this has been great, right? We're down three games to one. Congratulations to our team. We got to celebrate. It's been fun. And then the crazy game happened in game six, the famous Bartman game, that foul ball that could have been caught but wouldn't have been caught by Moises Alou. We have an eight-run eighth, and now we're tied at three. And I was thinking, wait a minute, if we win one game, we're in the World Series, there's no way we're going to beat Kerry Wood. You know, we've got Mark Redman going, who I love Mark Redman, but we're a big underdog here. And then we take a lead, <clears throat> we give up the lead, and then we won the pennant. That was the most surreal moment, more so than winning the World Series, celebrating in Wrigley Field in a silent stadium. And I mean silent other than the tears of the fans. I was reveling in the tears of the fans. I feel badly now. No, I don't actually. No. So that celebration of the pennant was, uh, that was something else. <laughs> I, I think we're going to need to uh, deep dive on some of these celebrations uh, uh, perhaps, but I, I don't want to stop the flow because, uh, you know, we're getting there, we're getting there. So don't, don't let me interrupt the flow here. So we then didn't know whether we were going to Boston or New York because they were playing that famous game seven where Aaron Boone hit a walk-off home run to get to the finals, to get to the World Series. We were actually on our team bus watching the game on the little TVs on top of the bus because we couldn't get on the plane because we didn't have a flight plan because we didn't know whether we were flying from Chicago to New York or Chicago to Boston. So we had hotel reservations in both cities. We were ready to go. We sat there entering the runway on the way to get into the runway at Chicago's Midway Airport. And Aaron Boone hits the home run. The Yankees are going to the World Series. Our bus pulls up to the plane. We get on the plane. And an hour and a half later, we land in New York. And all of a sudden, we're in the World Series against the Yankees. And we just said, listen, for Christ's sake, we're here already. Let's just try to win four out of seven more games because we have a chance to. We think we're good now. Josh Beckett was pitching very well at the time. Ugeth or Bina's elbow was hanging on by like a string. We said, hey, just pretend you can go in and pitch a few times. And all of a sudden, we won four games. And I'll never forget Josh Beckett, the final out. And I thought about, uh, and this is a story I've told and I think about it all the time that baseball is such a weird sport. I was sitting next to the third base dugout at Yankee Stadium. And I had a view of the field and I had a view of the Yankees dugout, which is the first base dugout. 
And I remember in the ninth inning when Josh Beckett was going out to finish a complete game to win a World Series. I remember looking at Derek Jeter, who I had no idea who I would have a relationship with going forward. I had no idea he'd one day be the owner of the Miami Marlins. None of that was even a kernel of a thought. What I do remember is looking at Derek Jeter, and Derek Jeter was doing the exact same thing I was doing during the ninth inning of the World Series. He had his head on his hands, and he was watching the game the same way I was. And I thought, what an unbelievable sport where a team's best player during a time when they're only down 2 nothing, can do nothing but watch while the game finishes. And that's what I was doing as a team president. And I thought, what an unbelievable sport baseball is. Love it. Well, I, I agree on that front. So which, what was the biggest celebration? Sounds like the, the wild card celebration was crazy. The, the pennant one was crazy also. Maybe, maybe one of those two were even more so than the World Series one, it sounds like. So the winning in Chicago was the craziest celebration of all time. Uh, winning in New York when you won the World Series, it was more, uh, we, we actually, the funniest story from that celebration is that uh, we were in the middle of celebrating and George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, was so angry, he had them shut the power off in the clubhouse because he wanted us to leave. So we're there celebrating and drinking champagne and having fun and all of a sudden the lights go completely out. And we said, what, what's going on? And we were told by security that, hey, it's from above. This party's over. But we kept going. And they eventually turned the lights on. I think someone got to George and said, listen, let's not be that petty. But the Marlins remain forever as the last team to celebrate a World Series in old Yankee Stadium. And that's pretty cool. That is. That, no doubt about that. Um, I had... Um I had Boog Shombi on with me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it, was, it was a very, very fun episode and a very fun conversation. Um, some of the highlights from that were, uh, were him seemingly going to this memorabilia cupboard next door, and he was pulling out all sorts of stuff. And one of the things was his 2003 World Series ring. So I, I need to ask you, do you know... A, do you still have it? B, when was the last time you wore it? <laughs> so, of course, I still have it. And I wear, I wear it each October when I'm on the air. Because, and I wear it each opening day. Because it, I want to remind people on opening day why we play this game. You play it to get the ring. And during the playoffs, I wear it all through October to remind people this is why you're in the playoffs. You've got to keep working, keep grinding. You're gonna, it's going to take luck but you've got to keep playing hard every single pitch, every single at-bat, every single inning. And then when I go make appearances or give speeches or go to bar mitzvahs or weddings, I wear it because I let people always try it on and take pictures with it. And I do that because when I was a kid, I always wanted to see a championship ring. I never got to see one up close. So I'm very happy to share mine with people. And so they put it on their fingers and they take selfies and they post it. And I'm totally fine with that. Well, I, I remember seeing because because Boog had it fired up on the camera, and I must say, it looked uh, elaborate as a ring. Let's say it's actually the biggest World Series ring ever made, <laughs> and it looks very strange on me because I'm so small. But it takes up almost my entire finger. But I love it. Wow! Awesome. There you go. Bigger is better, as they say. <laughs> um, Awesome. It sounded like, I mean, what an incredible run in, in 2003. And it must have been a thrill for, for you, you know, second full season, I guess, with the Marlins. And 
rightly you've highlighted some some key moves that you made along the way and were made and you know eventually led to that that series in in uh, in, in New York so awesome I mean things then the next couple of years um, things were kind of you were still in the the window was still open I think you've already mentioned that earlier but couldn't you know we're over 500 ball but didn't end up getting back to the playoffs in in those seasons so what's kind of going through your head at that stage are you thinking right how do we extend our window who are we going to bring in to kind of get us up to the next level or I don't know what's well well in 2004 we had to trade away Derek Lee for financial reasons and we got back he stopped Troy to play first we let Pudge go because he signed a $40 million four-year deal with the Tigers, and there was no way we were going to match that. But other than that, we had the team back, and we really thought we had a chance, and it just never came together. So we actually tried to get better in 05 by signing Carlos Delgado as a free agent who was a great first baseman at the time to replace Hesop Choi, and also by trying to get Al Leiter to come back, and he did on a one-year deal to try to get some depth in our pitching staff. 2005 to me was the biggest disappointing year up to that time. It now comes in second behind 2012 in terms of disappointing years, in terms of performance on the field. But uh, I really thought we had a chance. We were in the race both years till late, and we just faded in September. And the problem with the 2005 team, and if you speak to the players who were on it, it, they suffered from a case of, hey, we got it this tomorrow hey, don't worry, we didn't win today, but we're so good that we can start winning starting tomorrow and we'll make the playoffs. And the problem is we ran out of tomorrows. And that was a very, very frustrating season for me. Yeah, this sounds it. it. Things in sport are just never that way where you can just flick the switch when you want. It just doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't work that way. Not that I've played pro-level um, sports, but in any kind of sport, you you can't just turn it on when you want, in my opinion. Um, so... Let's let's kind of conscious of. Um, I knew we could talk forever. Um, I knew this one could be uh, could be a long one. But I, there's a couple of subjects and topics I I want to get into because um, you know conscious will run out of time. So, and you mentioned it at the start. Actually, one of the the key objectives was the new stadium. And you know when you joined the Marlins, the Florida Marlins then were were effectively playing in an open air football stadium um, in Florida heat and sun and humidity. Um, how, how proud were you when you finally were able to deliver that stadium, Marlins Park in, well, in, in 2012, when, when the game, the first game was actually played, but how proud a moment was that for you? Well, it took 10 years to get to opening day from 2002 to 2012. Uh, the stadium agreements were agreed to in 2009. What I was proud of is that two things had happened. One, I know that we had saved baseball in Florida because there was a big question whether the team would have to relocate whether the team would be contracted who knows it just wasn't working at pro player stadium where the Dolphins play now called uh, uh, Landshark Stadium or Hard Rock Stadium it's changed so much and I was also proud of the fact that we brought in a building on time and under budget and that's because we really ran a tight ship for those 39 months of construction and we really spent the time trying to make sure that we had a beautiful, great stadium that would remind people of Miami and that they'd be proud of. Now, the history since 2012 has been complicated. I grant you that. But the fact is that Marlins Park now entering its, I guess, ninth season if they play. Is that right? 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 
ninth season already. That's unbelievable to me. To me, it seems like yesterday that 2012 happened. But anytime you can get a big public-private partnership, a half a billion dollar sort of construction project and have it come in on budget on time, it's pretty impressive. And, and I loved walking around Marlins Park and watching people enjoy different aspects of it. And while the attendance was never what I would have loved, I would have loved sellouts. The fact of the matter is that we've brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Yeah, I, well, I've been there only once, uh, which was the, the, the time when I decided I was going to become a, a Marlins fan, uh, which was back in 2016. So not, not that long ago. Um, I can testify it was raining heavily outside and the roof was closed, but baseball carried on. Stanton hit a huge home run. So um, that was it. That was the moment for me. But awesome, awesome stadium uh, for sure. What, and, and I, I don't want you to go into, I guess, huge ins and outs, but what were the key challenges you faced? It was a 10-year lead time to coming in um, to getting a stadium built. What were the kind of key issues, key challenges you faced in, in making that well, happen? The number one key challenge when you're building a ballpark is trying to get public money. And there's such cynicism around having public money go into a, a ballpark where the team is owned by someone who is perceived as rich, where the revenues from that ballpark go to the individual who owns the team. But at the end of the day, I was able to convince the politicians to vote for this because part of having a world-class city is having professional sports just like it is having libraries and convention centers and museums and parks. Professional sports are part of the fabric. If you want to be, if Miami wants to be a world-class city, you've got professional sports. That's the bottom line. And I explained to them, this has nothing to do with enriching our owner, Jeffrey Loria. You could have done a ballpark deal with Wayne Huizinga, but he wouldn't do it because he wouldn't pay for it all by himself. John Henry wouldn't pay for it all by himself. Jeffrey Loria is not going to pay for it all by himself. If you're waiting for an owner to come in and build a ballpark by him or herself, you're going to lose your team. And once you lose it, I promise you one thing only. You will spend more money trying to get another team back than you would trying to keep the team that you have here. And I was able to eventually prevail, but boy, it took a long time. I used to be six foot two back in 2002 when I got into baseball and I ended up right around 5'5 five, five because that's what it takes to get one of these deals done. Wow. Well, I can tell you, just going back to your earlier point, delivering uh, under budget and on time, I've just um, renovated my kitchen here and that went way over budget and way, way, way late. So, you know, multiply that by, yeah, you know, a couple of thousand dollars maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was so when you've got overruns, that's the biggest issue that happens when you're building a ballpark or whether you're doing a bathroom renovation or a kitchen renovation to avoid it. You just got to be willing to say no, because just because one person wants to make one little change and they think it's no big deal, there's a line of people outside my office who have one little change. And before you know it, you're at $5 million, $10 million, $15 million worth of changes. So the key to your bathroom renovation is you had to say no just a bit more often. I couldn't, I couldn't do it to my wife. There was just no way. It, it, she, she was too persuasive and the, the cabinets were too nice. So <laughs> there you go. Um, awesome. I didn't think we'd be getting into uh, renovations and kitchen and bathroom renovations, but hey-ho, so we have. Um, listen, one of the other things that I guess was a major milestone of, uh, of your time with the Marlins was, well, the rebrand. And what was the Florida Marlins became the Miami Marlins. And with that came a whole range of new jerseys. And 
I'm just interested to understand what the uh, what the thinking was, how it kind of ended up becoming the Miami Marlins. I guess maybe that was tied to the ballpark, perhaps. Um, but and equally from a a rebrand perspective, like what the thoughts were, what the the objectives were on that front. Well, you're exactly right. During the course of negotiating with the with the public sector, the county and the city of Miami Dade and Miami, respectively. In order for them to participate and give money toward the construction of a new ballpark, they wanted the name change from the Florida Marlins to the Miami Marlins. They were the Florida Marlins in the beginning because Wayne Huizinga, when he got the expansion team, wanted all of Florida. This is before the Rays. So he wanted all of Florida to love and embrace the Marlins. He also didn't very much like Miami. So he really had no interest in naming it the Miami Marlins. From my standpoint, I was completely new when they asked us to rename the team the Miami Marlins, we said no. And the reason we said no is we didn't want to give that point in the negotiation without getting something back. But we were perfectly fine with rebranding. The ballpark was moving to Miami. We thought it made sense, sense to do a rebrand, get new uniforms, get a new logo. But we didn't tell the public that, meaning, meaning the negotiators for the county and the city. We said, oh, if we're going to give you that, we got to get something else. But then a deal came into place where on November 11th, 2011, 11, 11, 11, we became the Miami Marlins. We unveiled our logo and uniforms. It was a couple of years in the making and it was great fun. And people were at first not happy with the change, which is normal. People, when anything changes, they want what's, what they're used to. They wanted the teal back. They wanted the vests back from the good old days. But we were happy with it. And I, you know, I wasn't surprised that Derek Jeter changed the uniforms because anything that I did, he wanted to get rid of. Uh, that's sort of the way he's operating the team. Anything that I did, literally anything that I was a part of, he got rid of and I'm happy for him. It's his team. He bought it. He can do with it what he wants. I always view that as, you know, 16 years with the team, I was merely a runner in the middle of a relay race where I have the baton for a lap. I took it from John Henry gave it to Derek Jeter, and one day Derek Jeter will give it to someone else. But what will always remain is that the Marlins are a baseball team in Major League Baseball here in Miami. Yeah, awesome. Um, in terms of just to kind of summarize your time with the Marlins, well, how, how would you summarize your time? It was, what, 15, 16 years? Um, you know, it's a long time. A World Series win, a new ballpark, a rebrand. A lot going on, right? I mean, we hosted the World Baseball Classic. We hosted an All Star game. So we lost 100 games. We traded Hall of Famers. We signed Hall of Famers. Really had it all. I would summarize it that I'm lucky. I never feel like I was working because I loved being a part, sort of like Hamilton, right? I was always in the room where it happened. And I, and I was a part of making decisions and helping people. But I think my favorite part of the 16 years is what I got to do in the community and my ability to make a difference to people who really didn't care whether we won or lost a particular game or a particular player was signed or traded. But we were in a position that we were able to help them with food or with Christmas gifts or with things that just morale by having players sign autographs. And that's a pretty significant thing. And the second biggest memory is when I got to travel overseas and visit the troops. We had a program called Marlins Visit the Troops, and we wouldn't do it via FaceTime. We would go to 
Afghanistan or we would go to Iraq. And I went on a trip where we went to Bahrain and to Qatar and to Frankfurt, Germany and Landstuhl Hospital and visited troops. And it was, uh, it was with Logan Morrison and John Buck and Jeff Conine and Andre Dawson. And we, uh, it made quite a difference. It was probably the best 10 day stretch I ever had in my career because these troops were fighting for, for basically to protect us so that we can play a funny game and make money doing it. These guys are living in, in, in barracks, the likes of which are, would not be approved by major league players, let's just say, or even minor league players. And uh, that it's just it's special to be able to make a difference. Puts it into, into perspective, right? I mean, you know, you need to see that and to feel it, and then, you know, it really hits home. So I feel you on that. Um, conscious, we only got a few minutes, and I, I need to finish off with um, the, the now infamous quick fire round. So um, it's probably the perfect end. Um, couple of questions, quick fire, just kind of single answers or short answers, um, and then we'll get you out of here. So, first one favorite ever Marlins player? Jeff Conine. Love it. Favorite, and this is a good one as well, based on the last area we talked about. Favorite Marlins jersey? The black jerseys from 2012. The new jerseys in black. Yeah, I love it. Best player you drafted? Jose Fernandez. Love it. R.I.P. Toughest negotiator from a player perspective? Joe Wolf, agent for Giancarlo Stanton. Oh, good. Um, the favorite member of the press, <laughs> if, if there were any. Clark Spencer, writer for the Miami Herald. Awesome. Montreal or Miami? Jemboku Montreal, Jabitita Montreal, Jabitea Montreal, uh, depuis deux ans et demi, may uh, Miami say chez moi. So, Miami. There you go. <laughs> I got you. Um, favorite current Marlins player? I'm trying to think if I can name a current Marlins player. <laughs> <laughs> I teed you up for that one, maybe. Well, no, I, I listen, I'm loyal to I'm loyal to some of the people. I think Derek hasn't fired like two people who were there when I was there. So uh, I'm going to go with, if we're talking just on field in uniform, I'm going to go Don Mattingly. Donnie, fair enough. That's a fair call. Um, best trade you ever executed? Trading for Cody Ross and giving up a dollar for him. There you go. Good dollar. On the flip side, though, and I promise I won't finish with this one, worst trade you ever executed. <laughs> Trading, God, there's, there's, there's a lot I would not have done if I had to do it again. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have traded Luis Castillo for Dan Straley. I wouldn't have traded Chris Paddock for Fernando Rodney. But the trade at the time where I was most upset that we had to make that trade would be the Cabrera trade, even though we got back two great prospects and Andrew Miller and Cameron Mabin. But at the time, that trade upset me because of what Cabrera meant, and I knew he'd be a Hall of Famer. In the rearview mirror, it's a different answer. Yeah, yeah. That, that's fair. That's the thing with trades. Final one, final one. It's 
fondest overall moment? Strike one in 2012 opening day when Josh Johnson threw strike one to Rafael Fracal. That was my fondest moment, that game and that season, and it all went down from there. But that feeling of strike one was uh, was my finest moment. The most memorable moment, I'll add a question, the most memorable moment of any game without question was when D. Gordon hit a leadoff home run uh, the day after Jose Fernandez died. That is a moment that I was very in the moment. It had been the most upsetting and I've never had a, a two-day stretch like that. I think about it every day. I don't talk about it much, but that game in general is a fog, but that moment is burned in my brain forever. I, I rewatched that game about two weeks ago, uh, the full broadcast of that. And I think, I think you were on the broadcast. I think you spent some time in the booth talking through, uh, I, I, I can't remember, but, uh, I don't know. even remember that. Well, you said it was a fog. I'm, I, I think you did. I mean, I've watched a few old Marlins games in the past few weeks because we've got nothing going on. So you're right. That de- How the guys played that game, I have no idea. I, could, I mean, it's, it was crazy. But, yeah, I mean, that's an emotional game, an emotional scenario. Um, I think it's a Sports good- is emotional. And when you start getting life and death thrown into the mix, it makes it even more emotional. But uh, I'm lucky. I had, I had 18 years within Major League Baseball, and, and I'm just honored and lucky to have had a career like that. It's longer than many, most in the world get an opportunity to do. And I love doing my show, Nothing Personal Now, and having a chance to meet people like you and spend some time on Zoom and talk, doing a podcast. It's, uh, there's a lot of great, smart people around that I enjoy talking to all of them. So thank you very much. David Sampson, it's been awesome having you on. I appreciate your time. Like I said, this could have been a, a three-hour special. Uh, conscious, you've got to go, so I'll let you go. Um, hopefully, we'll speak again soon and have you on. I think, really, there's so much more that we can, we can dig through in, in your time with the Marlins. So stay in touch. But listen, thanks so much again, and um, we'll speak soon. And thanks to the listeners. 